Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You're here today with Beth and the wonderful Charlie. Charlie, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. And how are you, my love? All good, all good, thank you. And Charlie, who have we got on with us today? We've got a wonderful guest joining us today. We've got James Waterson. He's a graduate of the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies of the University of Dundee. And I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce this because it will be awful. The University of Fabra in Barcelona. Now, he's a real globetrotter having worked in the Middle East, the US and China. And he's the author of books on medieval murder, jihad in the Holy Land and China's Mongol Wars. His latest book is a beautiful one entitled The Crusades in a Hundred Objects. And that's what he's come to talk to us about today. Hi, James. Hi, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm going to try to plug every other book. (laughs) this 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 is the one at the minute. Please do. This is a safe space. <laughs> Absolutely. So obviously the title is, is pretty self-explanatory for the book, The Crusades in 100 Objects. I was having a look at the cover. of it. It's a beautiful cover as well. I do. We do like a good book cover here on History Hack. Um, and some of these objects go back before you'd expect, you know, maybe prior to um, the actual crusading period. So one of those is the Trajan's Column. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it got into the book? Yeah, it's there partly because things are made of wood. Um, Essentially, siege artillery in the medieval period, we don't really have any, obviously, original pieces anymore. Um, And I faced the same problem when I wrote about the um, Song Dynasty and the Yuan Dynasty and the Jin, Jin Dynasty in China, Obviously, weaponry then was made of iron. But in fact, if you want to know anything about Chinese weaponry, you have to go back to the Han Dynasty because then it's made of bronze and it doesn't rot. 
So the Trojans column is great because it shows very clearly um, those large quarrels or crossbows that are used in siege artillery. It shows you the tormentums with their wine glasses and so on. And it shows you the very simple kind of trebuchets or mangonels that the crusaders would have taken in 1099. Because the other thing that is really important about this, and you've got to feel sorry for these guys when they're facing up to Byzantine um, built cities like Nikea, is they're essentially bringing siege artillery that hasn't evolved in such a long period of time. I can't even remember when Trajan died. Any guesses from the audience? It's around 200 AD. And it's around that kind of no, it's not as late as that. Anyway, in nearly in, a, in over a thousand years, nearly two thousand years, this, over a thousand years, this hasn't changed, right? So these guys turn up, and what I think we do know is that a lot of the time, these uh, very small scale mangonels that were brought with um, crusaders to try and tackle a, a, a city with such thick walls as Nikea and triple walls in the case of Antioch. A lot of time they're using biological warfare, right? They're throwing dead bodies in there. They're mm. throwing dead horses in there. They're yeah. tormenting a little bit with it. But essentially, you know, there's no way that those walls are going to be coming tum tumbling down with the kind of hardware that they took with them. So that was really the reason for putting Trajan's column in there. And, and again, um, you'll find when you, when you look at the book that there's a great big spread, as you say. That's probably the oldest thing pretty much in the book. But then equally, we've got some things about Prester John and the modern interpretations of that myth and so on. And what I wanted to do was not focus absolutely on the period, but look how things change over time. Things evolve because the Crusades, if nothing else, are an immense body of ideas and an ethos in itself. And that changes over time. And I hope that the objects that uh, were selected for the book really indicate that as well. And I've tried to tell chronological with the story but as for me the book is as much about the counter crusaders as it is about the crusaders and you will find that the huge amount of the objects in the book are also from the near east they're from the islamic side arguably that's actually i know far more about that than i do about western crusaders to be frank although i'm changing my direction uh, week by week um and we're we're looking again also um now at what happened to the crusade ethos? How did it become things like the Order of the Dragon once the Europeans were beginning to have to defend Christendom against the invading Ottomans? What happened with those other orders like um, the Order of the Garter, for example? What did that actually take from ideas of you know, Knights of Christ, changing that to really perhaps more of a loyalty to a monarch or a loyalty to uh, a smaller established group of nobles and so on. Because crusading loses its way as well. I think that's another part of the objects in the book that we try to tell the story of as well. Enough of Trajan's column. Is that enough of an answer? <laughs> this is really interesting because you 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 brought it into, into my wheelhouse, you know, the Order of the Garter and much, much later. But I am going to bring us back to um, to the crusading objects. And I'm going to mention our boss, Alex. So one of her favourite travelling experiences that she's told us about, she said, we could not talk to you without asking you about this. One of her favourite travel experiences was she took a road trip through Andalusia. And the big surprise there was Cordoba. And again, I apologise if I've pronounced that wrongly. So why does the mosque that's there make it into the 100 greatest crusading objects? There's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons. The, the first thing to say is 
yes, when I went to university to the School of Oriental African Studies, I intended to study Chinese history. Uh-huh. But of course, you do 101. So we did African, we did Near East, we did South Asian, and we did Chinese. And suddenly, Islam smacked me between the eyes. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is the one. And the Mosque of Cordoba was one of the reasons why. Because when you think, what, what the heck is this thing doing in southern Spain? This is just incredible. <laughs> and it's so beautiful. The other thing was that our professor, uh, the late great Dr. Uh, David Morgan, great, uh, great uh, Mongol author, but also great, uh, he was actually a crusade historian before he attended the School of Oriental African Studies and his PhD was on the Mongols, who again, you can't avoid in the crusades period. And as Dr. Morgan would have said, you can't avoid the Mongols anywhere, because they're everywhere. <laughs> but he actually said to us as undergraduates, he said, listen, you guys, you're broke. You have no money whatsoever. You can't get visas very easily from the Middle East. Go to Spain. So, of course, we all went ragtag down to Spain. You bum around for a bit. It's fairly cheap. And then this thing, again, hits you between the eyes. The other thing is noticeable, though, is object number one. Because the, let's say, the very poorly named Reconquista, because let's let's basically be frank, it was mostly knights from Navarre and northern Spain that were actually um, trying to push the Muslims out of Spain from pretty early, predates the First Crusade. Mm. And I think that was why it was so important for me to say, well, yeah, the First Crusade is exceptional. It's beyond the borders of Europe, but there is an, a growing and evolving process, an increasing confidence in Western Europe in this time. There's also quite a lot with the papacy beginning to take control of operations, the most sophisticated bureaucracy, obviously, in Western Europe at that time as well, after the reforms of Gregory and, and Clermont and so on and so forth. But that was why. And also, there's actually quite an early poem placed in there in Cordoba about how sad it was for the Muslims to be starting to have it to realize they were going to have to give this up, that they were actually losing against these barbaric, in their eyes, I guess, Western knights that were going to take this from them. And, and that's really a number of reasons why I put it there. And also, of course, as an object, it is just spectacular. I mean, yeah. I went with, I think I look back at my old pictures and they're all grainy and a bit rubbish, probably taken with a throwaway camera or something. <laughs> and then I was able to go back a few years ago, actually, I was there for, um, for my day job. And of course, now you can take panoramics and you can get all of the horseshoe arches and, and all of that. The other thing as well is that, that confidence that came about in, in Western Europe and that advance from literally through the 11th century, a lot of that is built on Jewish and Arabic learning imported through Spain. And we don't see that kind of interface or that kind of changing, I'm sorry, that's not really the right word, exchange of ideas. It doesn't occur in Palestine. There it's very much confrontational. We do see some objects that cross, for example, um, from Mosul, a great Arabic metalwork from there into the Crusader lands. But to be honest, most of the channels of communication, friendly communication between Islam and Christendom take place either in southern Spain with that transfer of ideas and learning. And we all know, you know how algebra comes into Western Europe and so on, but also Venice and Egypt with direct trade and direct import of metallic objects that could then have local family names added and so on and so forth. This was not... Um, a conquest type process. We find in Palestine very little transference of ideas. And that's quite sad, actually, for both sides. The, the Muslims were completely uninterested in Western culture. They possibly could have gained a little bit from it. But equally the other way, um, the knights and, and ladies, we talk about soap, I think, a little bit later in the book, 
are very, very interested in the objects from the West. What can they gain? Things like pajamas, candy, all these lovely luxuries. But they're not particularly interested in an intellectual um, approach to Islam, which did take place, oddly enough, in Spain. Mm. Um, so I think that's why it's number one. So many reasons to put it in there. And it just looks fab fabulous as well. Absolutely. And obviously, that's a very, very grand, as you say, it's number one, the, the, the Mosque of Cordoba, it's so grand. And I've never seen it in real life, but my sister went there and the pictures just look fabulous. And um, there's plenty of obviously much smaller objects because obviously you've got your large out there, but you've got your small every day as well. And you've got something in the book called, I, I have to say if I can get this right, is it naphtha grenades? <laughs> what are they? <laughs> Um, napalm. <laughs> napalm. It's it's medieval napalm. <laughs> um, or, or Greek fire as well. In fact, I think oh. there is even even a picture of Greek fire being delivered from a ship when when the Byzantines were trying to reclaim control of the Eastern Mediterranean. One of their favourite weapons was either to shoot naphtha under the waves, or they could shoot it um, from tubes at the front of ships. In a great big competition with with Venice, of course, but also with um, the Islamic. Uh, navies as well. But naphtha is um, fun stuff. It's made from a lot of dolphin fat. There's a list of about 35 different ingredients in it. I presume most of it's to make it sticky and mm. also to make it really difficult to extinguish. Um, there's a lovely story about the gentleman of Damascus. That's all we know. We don't know his name. He turns up at the siege. Now I have to get this right. He was at Acre. He was at Acre as the third crusade was arriving on the shores as the Crusaders were attempting to retake the city with this very strange situation of Acre having um, an Islamic garrison, then being surrounded by the Crusaders. Then they were surrounded by Salah Adin, and they were trying to break into Acre because obviously then they could start to get supplies and support in. Um, and eventually it did fall to the Crusaders. But this gentleman of Damascus, he's listed very mysteriously in the Chronicles as being a, a hobbyist. And his hobby was pyro pyromania by the sound of it. <laughs> and, he, and, and his friends actually tried to talk him out of this hobby. They were saying, you know, this is pretty, pretty daft what you're doing. And, all this. and he said, this is a harmless hobby. It does no harm to other people. Well, it did a heck of a lot of harm to a lot of people in Acre because one of the things he was able to do was swing blazing um, torches across the walls to sweep people off of siege ladders. He was able to make literally a flamethrower and shoot people over. They were actually trying to um, attack from their um, siege machines. But Naphtha also has a good history with the Mamluk dynasty as well. This is, this is what I really like about these small objects is we often think about military treatises being the most important and beautiful parts of um, military heritage. And, and again, the, the Mamluks um, have produced beautiful military tactical books about how to deploy cavalry. Um, Al-Tarsusi wrote for Saladin and gave us beautiful diagrams for how to arrange your army with your um, infantry in the front with sloping shields and then crossbows and so on and so forth. But there also is a fascination in military societies in the Middle East with these kind of technical things, you know, like hand grenades. I don't think you would find too much in, in any other military manuals around the world about this kind of minutiae. Um, and the other thing is as well that they're so well described that they, we are capable of recreating them. In, in the book, what we have there are replicas created in the Sharjah uh, Museum of Islamic Civilization one of the smaller, well, not actually one of the smaller emirates, one of the bigger emirates of the United Arab Emirates, but not usually the place anyone goes to. So again, if you folks are coming to Dubai, 
go to Sharjah instead because it's much more cultured and civilized and has this kind of thing in it. But again, so you fill these clay pots with naphtha, you light the fuse and you throw it. The other thing we know is that the Mamluks, for example, they would have small darts loaded with naphtha. They'd have a tube mounted onto their bow, and then they could fire five or six of these darts across the battlefield, showering. I mean, it'd be like, what is that thing we call it now? Is it a smart bomb? No, it's not a smart bomb. It's a cluster bomb. That thing, I think it's been banned, doesn't it, on the Geneva Convention because it's so deadly. Um, But Robert of Joinville, when he was with... um, Louis IX, and he was uh, trying to take Damietta from the Mamluks, he describes how an entire, I think he actually describes it as a patch of land worth a day's work. Well, that's quite a lot of plowing, right? It's quite a big area, completely covered with fire darts, and that even the Templars were retreating in front of this firestorm that you were capable of laying down with this naphtha. So pretty deadly stuff, particularly not a harmless hobby at all. But I think that these are... um, interesting and also in the book there is probably the most beautiful hand grenade i think i've ever seen in my life it looks a little bit like the german hand grenade with the handle on it you know what did they call them stick grenades yeah but this one's engraved (laughs) what is essentially a bomb they've got a lot of work to make this thing beautiful i I don't know maybe it's um maybe it was an ornamental piece i don't know but it's, it's quite magnificent from around around 1335 14 1400 maybe a little bit later than the Crusades period, but the Mamluks are so central to that period as, as being the nemesis of the Crusaders that I really had to have this thing in. It was quite, quite beautiful. For a, for a bomb, it was, it was a thing. Yeah. It sounds amazing. I mean, my, my, my upbringing in uh, Monty Python just makes me think of the holy hand grenade of Antioch. <laughs> uh, the sort of beautiful, beautiful hand grenade. Um, but that brings us very neatly on to our next question through through Monty Python, of course. You can't have got through writing this book without, without coming across some relics. So which relics made it in? Have you got anything good you can share with us? Which relics made it in? Well, I think the most magnificent setting of a relic is Bruges. I, I really love that chapel. And, uh, and again, I was lucky enough. It's very difficult to get in because it seems to have very limited visiting hours. Um, and it, of course, it's the file of Christ's blood, believe it or not, as you wish. But again, I think it's related to that idea in Western Europe that we are the chosen people now. We are like the new Israelites. And I think that is part of the evolution of the crusade. Rather than going to Jerusalem rather than actually undertaking armed struggle to retain it. It's fairly obvious that Jerusalem is lost after 1225, despite Frederick's strange crusade, um, to reclaim it for a few years. After the destruction of the Latin kings um, by the Quarimisiums, it's pretty much obvious that this is going to be a tiny little strip of land all based around Acre. Jerusalem is gone. Then, of course, slightly later, Jerusalem becomes far too difficult to actually travel to. Um, and you start to see this internalizing of religious thought. And again, that was something I really wanted to bring through these objects in the book as well. This change in the ethos, this change in the ideals of what crusading actually meant. Of course, later on, Europe is on the defensive, right? It's actually fighting the Ottomans in the Balkans. Um, Mohammed has taken Constantinople in 1453. He's claimed to be the Holy Roman Emperor, that he has more right to it than the German Emperor. And this is a really big challenge. 
So that question of identity that is so massive in the Middle Ages, which is wrapped up with religion, um, actually comes through with the relics as well. So that gathering in, there was actually also, um, I can't remember which writer it was now that was saying it was very, very important. And, and again, I know you've had somebody talking about the Fourth Crusade on, on this show before, that relics should be gathered from the schismatic Greeks and taken back to the true church because they had no right to them, right? These, these guys are, are schismatics. They're, they're not followers of the correct Holy See. So these, these relics that are so vitally important and so valuable should be here right back in Europe. And you see that in a lot of places. You see that in Karlstein with Charles IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, building the Jerusalem Chapel inside his, um, inside his castle. You see it in Bruges with the far, you see it with Louis IX taking the crown of thorns back to Notre Dame. Thank goodness it survived the fire recently. Somebody dashed in and rescued it. That was really close. Whether, again, whether we believe it's the holy crown of thorns or not, it's academic, right? It's really about the beauty of the way that it's um, been preserved in crystal, that it's presented, and what it really fundamentally means. Uh, Jean Cocteau was right. Over time, history becomes myth. Myth becomes history. They're so wrapped up in each other. And I found, again, whenever I've written about particularly military societies, this law, and I say law because my pronunciation, so that L-O-R-E is vitally important. It's vitally important with the idea of the assassins, for example, as a sect. It's vitally important to the Mamluks, this idea of step tradition, of defeating the Mongols, of creating um, a, um, what is the word, amor propae, you know, what your, your feeling of self-being in, in, in the field. And I think Western Europe goes through that process really significantly during the Crusades period. And equally, of course, there's a decay of the importance of big shock monarchs and knights and kings who go on crusade because they're defeated by the Hussites out there in Bohemia. They have a really tough time of it against the Cathars as well down there. And against the Ottomans, so many crusades failed. Nice, Nicopolis, Varna, they're all abject failures, essentially, although I have some sympathy with Jonas Hunyadi. He came close. Um, many times, but a grinding war was really the way to defeat the Ottomans. And it becomes very obvious that the Crusades, the Crusader kings who only stay a few months in the Holy Land or only got, are interested in death or glory down there in the Balkans are essentially useless. You need professional military, you need artillery, you need to grind out the victories, and you need to stretch the Ottomans out. And, it, and it's the same, I think, you know, the death of chivalry, I think I actually called one of the chapters that because that, that's the other thing that we see in this period. The Crusades ethos perhaps moves to the sailors, right? Those that go out globally. I think I even used the line, the Crusades went global, because <laughs> you've got this idea again of a God-given right to conquer South America. The Pope carves up South America between the Portuguese and the Spain, because it's their right. You know, we're Western Christians. We have a, I'm not saying anything about the morals here. <laughs> I'm just no, saying, no, I'm trying to understand the mentality. And again, I think objects really help us with that. Absolutely. One of the objects towards the back end of the book, again, is um, carved ivory from Benin and its Portuguese sailors as seen by the natives in a carved um, salt cellar. And again, it's, uh, it's just that idea that the ethos is still there of the right to, to crusade, but it's a totally different ball game, so to speak. Jerusalem, I think, loses its importance fairly early, oddly enough. I mean, I'd argue we're still we're we're still seeing that today. Yeah, the mentality times and yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Some some of your objects 
are quite interesting in the fact that there's elements of are they in the right place or so and like there's the horses at St Mark's at Venice which is obviously you know probably one of the most photographed buildings in the world St Mark's Venice the horses the tower it's fantastic (laughs) but the horses they they shouldn't they shouldn't be there should they they're not or or there's been times where they haven't been there and have been there and so on (laughs) I I think the Venetians would argue that they should be there I mean, again, let, let, let's not talk, talk morally because otherwise we'll get hate mail, I'm sure. Um, but I'm sure if we went around the world attempting to return objects to their rightful owners, we, we, would, we would never get on top of it, really. Um, I don't think Istanbul's ever getting these horses back. Let's, let's be perfectly mm. honest about that one. Um, and uh, I think the Italians should perhaps be allowed to keep them as compensation. I was walking down a street in, in Florence uh, about a year ago, and there was a sign in a window of a shop that said, we really love the French people, but Napoleon was a thief. So, you know, these things go on. This translocation of, of objects that really does go on quite rapidly. But what they, I think, again, what they really signify is something that uh, Donald Queller wrote about in, in the 70s, I think 1974, his book on the Fourth Crusade. And he said one of the motivations was certainly relic collecting. There was a fever amongst Western Europeans at this point. And I think, um, and again, we've we've already talked about the crown of thorns and Bruges. Um, But what you're also seeing is, and again, there's some of these objects in the book, you're seeing these beautiful rock crystal carvings from Fatimid Egypt that are then having filigree added to them in Europe to make them even more beautiful, although... Personally, I think the rock crystal looks better without the filigree, but it depends what your taste is. But if you're a West European French prince, you probably want to have a little bit of added um, colour and a little bit of gold and a little bit of metal there. And, of course, then the finger bone is in there, the tooth is in there, the piece of St Andrew, or choose your favourite saint, you know, and <laughs> put in there. And, again, I think that motivation was very, very important that these objects should be saved from the schismatics. And in fairness to the Fourth Crusade, they didn't know it at the time, but it, it probably wasn't that unwise because, you know, who's coming up the road? The Mongols are coming, destroying everything in front of them. Um, it's probably a good idea to save these things and bring them into Western Europe and keep them safe. So I don't think um, uh, Istanbul's ever getting them back. Um, the Hippodrome is not that impressive in Istanbul anymore, of course. It's a nice walk, but there's not much else to, to see, whereas St. Mark's, they do look pretty good up there, I think, to mm. be quite honest. Um, <laughs> Again, but it's not just looting. There's a lot of purchasing going on as well. There's a great business in relics selling um, right across. I think King, I can't remember how much Louis IX paid for the crown of thorns, but he paid a lot. Um, and I think he actually bought it from the Latin emperor who was so broke during that short period of 1204 to 1261 um, when you know you had the Latin empire of, of, of Constantinople. So it wasn't it wasn't all looting, but they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not getting them back for sure. Um, and I think that the other thing that this indicates is how central the Italian maritime republics are to the Crusades were. Mm. I've written about this before in another book called Sacred Swords, which originally started out to be a complete history of Genova, Pisa, and, and Venice, and the competition between the three. The publisher twisted my arm and said, you know, you really need to talk about a few more things as well here as well. And it turned up, and I, I think we'll probably end up talking about him today, you end up in that period, you always end up with Saladin as being the centre of any book. You end up, before you know where you are, you've written 150 pages on the Sultan, and you think, oh, my God, what have I done? It's supposed to be about Venice. Uh, but there's plenty in there about Venice because that technological revolution 
that took place, particularly in Venice, the speed of being able to build boats by rib building rather than the old, very laborious planking that the Muslim navies were still doing, meant that they could put so many ships in the sea. But they were also brave. They had a tremendous amount of the land. They would sail in winter. They had an advantage, perhaps, because the current tends to flow east across the Mediterranean, so they could um, sail much easier into the coast and then cut into the cities than those defenders, uh, the Fatimid Navy, generally in Saladin's Navy later on. But they were also um, prepared to take the risk and the gambles. And I think maybe that's their payoff. They get four pretty, well, there's eight of them, actually, isn't there? There's four. The real four are inside. The four on the roof are fake, right? <laughs> Amazing. Well, look, almost as if we we prepared for this conversation, James. I do want to ask you about Saladin now. He's a he's obviously a towering figure of the Crusades. So what what did you include in your 100 objects relating to him? So many, so many things. <laughs> Either, what percentage? I, I, there, are, there are greater historians than me that have fallen under the Saladin spell. It, it, it's just one of those things that happens. H.A.R. Gibb, who was probably one of the greatest historians of the Crusades period, he was an absolute Saladin junkie, and, and I'm the same. Sometimes I feel like I'm a very poor historian because I'm like, you know, a fan. Um, I remember reading a paper by Aaron Krutz, who's very, very good on the Navy, actually, in this period. He's a very, very good historian. But he's so rude about Saladin, I almost refuse to read anything more <laughs> by Aaron Krutz ever again because he called him a usurper, sorts of terrible things, an opportunist, somebody who abused the Holy War. But for me, this is the central character of the Counter-Crusade. Um, he obviously has a great name in the West because of Dante and so on and so forth. And I think we, you know, we might come, come back and think about that a little bit later. But still today, so in, in the book, you've got a propaganda movie poster from 1963, Saladin and the Crusaders, which has a sort of a double-edged thing here because Nasser, the then um, leader of Egypt, was trying really desperately trying to associate himself with Saladin because um, obviously he wanted to be number one man in the Middle East. He was trying to encourage Syria into a union with uh, Egypt. He was having a dirty war in Yemen that was going incredibly badly at the time. And he really wanted to um, present himself as the anti-Western. You know, we all remember, obviously, um, the uh, Aswan Dam funding and then, of course, the Suez crisis. And this was great for him, you know. Um, of course, he met his comeuppance in 1967, unlike Salah Adin, who went on to an unrivaled <laughs> series of um, victories. Although, again, as, as I mentioned in the book, Salah Adin, for me, is not a great battlefield general, he, he, but he is a fantastic war leader. And I think that's why you see him in that movie poster. You also see him in smaller art house movie posters where he has become a symbol of resistance in the Middle East. I'm not terribly sure what that resistance is against. Sometimes it's against corrupt government. Sometimes it's against, um, obviously, the Israeli presence in the Middle East. Again, images and relics and products of um, an individual like this can be used in so many different ways. But it's very interesting that he's often seen as a symbol of resistance against corrupt government, because I think that's the other thing. He wasn't just a great war leader. He morally rearmed Islam. Jihad is a, is, a, is a very complex process in Sunnism, which requires just law. It needs to be pan-Islamic, so you need to, to bring many allies together, which is why he spent so much time with, um, let's call it conquering, but in, in some ways it was wrapping in Aleppo, Mosul, 
He even talks about the Jazeera. He uses a play on words about this little Jazeera will be the Jazeera that is the lever to bring about the great island of Islam, i.e. get rid of the crusaders, push them into the sea, and then we'll have one place. So again, this, this great moral leadership, you start to see it with, with, with Zangi a little bit earlier, and then Nuruddin was also called the Saint King as well. But of course, Saladin as well, he's a Kurd in a Turkish world. And that's the other slight irony of one of the other objects. You've got this statue in downtown Damascus. When I say downtown, it's near the secret police headquarters. But anyway, we'll call it downtown for now. It's not that hip and cool and trendy. It's not a straight street in Damascus. <laughs> um, but it's a little bit ironic that, you know, Assad family commissioned this statue. It's, it's, it's supposed to indicate um, right after the Battle of Hattin, you've got a, a Templar knight at the back of the, of the horse as Saladin is almost riding over him. You've got um, King Guy looking distraught with his crown on the floor. You've got, I think it's Reynaud de Chatillon with a huge handlebar moustache holding a big sack of money because, of course, he was um, in some ways the um, cause of the Sultan's anger, so it's recorded, um, because he was raiding Muslim um, caravans and he was also attempting to storm Jeddah um, down the Red Sea. He's quite an inventive chap, actually, Reynaud. He's got a very bad name in history, but I think he was... Um, uh, quite, quite, a, quite a brutal person, but not, not as stupid as people would suggest. King Guy, I think, pretty, was pretty stupid. Um, but it's interesting, again, that this is, given the history of both Iraq governments, I'm very careful to say this, governments, not people, and the Syrian governments, and what they have done to the Kurdish people over the years, there is a slight irony in the fact that this statue is there in the centre of downtown Damascus. And certainly Saddam Hussein spent a lot of time trying to associate himself with Saladin as, again, this great resistor against the Western armies. Um, obviously, Gulf War I in 1991 was, was a key part of that process as well. Hmm. But as I say, he's, he, he's, he's just massively important. You can't avoid him in the Crusades. Um, I, I, I just... He's, again, he's part of that law, the L-O-R-E law, that this is the ideal. Um, Walter Scott finds him in the talisman as that. But also you know, the story that he died with like one gold coin and 13 silver coins in his pocket when he died in Damascus, having exhausted himself. And there are some great speeches put in his mouth <laughs> by his somewhat hyperbolic um, biographer at times where he says things like, you know, we are the only army of Islam, nobody is coming to support us, nobody is to help us. Because, to be honest, politics at that time in the Muslim world as well was an absolute nest of vipers, absolutely awful. You know, you could, you could almost bribe the caliph to give you a, a diploma to manage a city and so on and so forth. So he, he really does stand out. And I think that's why he deserves. And, of course, the other thing is there's two sarcophagi. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I think I've asked people, and nobody's terribly sure which one he's in. <laughs> I hope he's in the wooden one. I yeah. hope he's in the original 12th century sarcophagus because Kaiser Wilhelm visited the Middle East and donated a rather dubious <laughs> sarcophagus in marble to the great Sultan. I'm sure this was to reflect glory upon the, uh, the Kaiser himself rather than uh, the Sultan Salah bin. But nobody uh, seems to be terribly sure which one he's in. They're right next door to each other. If you visit the great mosque in Damascus, if we ever get the chance, of course, um, again, given the, given the problems of that country, I was very fortunate actually. I was there pretty much the year before the civil war broke out and a couple of times before in Aleppo as well. Um, he, he's, he's right there and he's central. And yeah, I really hope he's in the wooden one. Please, please let him be. Uh, <laughs> he is quite a, quite the character, isn't he? So you obviously, when we talk about the Crusades, we obviously have an idea of what they are in our head of, you know, Western European Christians going to the, the Holy Land to save the Holy Land and whatnot. But there's also lesser crusades as well, isn't there? And there's one in particular that does interest me, um, which is about the Cathars. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time in Cathar country on holidays in Narbonne, Carcassonne, Beziers, all the way down into the Corbières at the foothills of the Pyrenees. It's a beautiful part of France. If you ever get to go, please do, because it's a wonderful part of France. Um, but it's just so interesting. But can you tell us more about the Cathars and how they feature into your into your book as well? No, I mean I know I know the area you mean, and mm. and of course there's uh, Jonathan Sumption. I think he's the best I've read on this mm. on, on the Albigensian Crusade, um, and what he seems to feel is that this is almost like a northern France versus southern France ethnic tussle, mm. as much as it is religious. Yeah. Really tells us a lot about what we need to know. And it was quite difficult to choose an, choose an image for this, actually, to choose an object for this, because Bézier comes up as the cathedral. You think, oh, well, you know, they put lots of people in there and set fire to it, and they did terrible things, and that famous line that you get, isn't it? Kill them all, God will choose, God will find his own. Yeah. Um, from, I think it's another Reynald, isn't it, if I remember correctly. But for me, I chose the images I did because this was nice material history of quite an interesting again, religious ideal that travels all the way from Bulgaria with the Bogomils. It changes slightly and comes into Italy, and then it changes into that final form that we know it as the Cathars with the perfects and so on down there in southern France, where it's really distinctly identified and also quite well supported by the nobility and very difficult mm. to dislodge. But what we also see, of course, in crusading terms is this idea that, again, I don't necessarily have to travel all the way to Jerusalem to get God's blessing to get papal indulgence. I can stay right here and kill all these heretics. Pope, Pope's going to give me the indulgences. I personally do think that there's a small idea. I don't really, maybe I shouldn't use the term ethnic cleansing, but no, it's a land grab. I think that's the best term. That's really what I get out of this, this particular crusade, to be perfectly honest. Um, but of course, it's not just there. It's happening in Bohemia with the Hussites. It's happening with um, that. There's almost beginnings of a splintering of this monolithic Catholic church that has been central to the crusades. We've got what has been viewed by some writers as a captive papacy in Avignon. 
We've also mm. got, you know, anti-popes and popes. We've got the Wycliffeites in, in England, which obviously then influenced Jan Hus, the Hussite revolution there. They've, they've got a lot of problems. So maybe they need the crusade weapon really badly internally to quell that, right? Um, I think the other thing as well is that we're coming back to this idea of we are the people of God, we are the new Israelites. Heretics are absolutely appalling and disgusting people, right? Mm. Thomas Aquinas calls them as bad as coin counterfeiters, right? Because they rot society, they rot the body politic. So death for count, coin counterfeiters, death for Cathars. I'm not condoning this. Right? <laughs> I'm trying to understand yeah. the mentality. And, and, and again, I, I always worry because I obviously I wrote I write a lot about military societies and I write a lot about medieval people. And I always try to keep in mind that I think it was Joshua Steinberg say it, said it, we're no smarter than our ancestors. And also, I'm a child of an age where we were prepared to do mutually assured destruction over two ideologies mm. between, you know, whatever you want to call it. If you want to call it Western capitalism for a convenient badge, we can call that or Western liberalism versus communism. So I'm kind of used to that black and white as well. And we're not guiltless in this in many, many ways. It's very easy to, to write off medieval people. I find this a lot, you know, mm. this is such medieval activity, medieval mentality, et cetera. Oh, yes. These are actually very complex people who think a great deal about identity. Absolutely. Um, so that quelling of a, what they possibly would have viewed as a cancer within the body politic, within the society, is secular as much as it's spiritual. But the Crusades' weapon and, of course, the Militis San Petri, who are the beginnings of the Knights for St. Peter, or the, the um, adherence to the, to the papacy, they're absolutely a great weapon for this kind of thing. And, of course, we see Templar Knights um, in, in, in southern France as well during that time as well, being involved. And, of course, at the time, they're pretty much the, the shock troops, um, the frontline religion type individuals. Fanatics, we might call them. But, again, as I say, as a child of... MAD, <laughs> that period of, of history, I can understand it as well. And, and I think we should. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. It's a, you know, putting things in black and white is always a much easier way of way of handling them and of dealing with them. But the uh, the Crusades are interesting because they were fun for all ages. Um, <laughs> what was the Children's Crusade? Uh, and do you have any any objects in the book associated? I, I love because, the idea of these tiny knights. Yeah, Please tell me they're I, tiny children knights. No, I don't, I don't know. I must be honest. I'd almost forgotten about the children's crusade. <laughs> it left very little material evidence. Is the first problem. There's you know there's engravings from the 19th century. And I I don't really want to do that. You know I I tried to avoid that very much. I tried to find things that were much much closer to the events or things that were. For example, I've actually got a bunch of custom signs from around the world because customs and excise and duty for good or ill comes from the crusades directly it comes from the diwan it comes from the arabic word and that is exactly what what Utrima 
uh, really turned into. It came, it changed from the idea of a messianic community there in Palestine trying to liberate um, Jerusalem to really an Eastern Mediterranean settlement of Latins making money from customs and trade with a little bit of religion thrown in. But the Children's Crusade, yeah, it, I, there's next to nothing in it. And, and, and the, it didn't the, really happen. It's we, actually out material. Ah, this is a tricky one. I mean, it's almost a footnote in crusading history, isn't it? It has been suggested it never took place. I, I'm not sure about that, but Stephen of Close, I think, and Nicholas of Cologne, I think these were the two main players, if I remember correctly. They stirred up something. Um, and again, there has been a theory that these were not even children. These were lower people of classes. Okay. And certainly when I started to think about this, I thought, well, this was pretty much... In 1291, the causas belli for the destruction of Acre for Sultan Khalil was that a whole bunch of rough people from Tuscany had turned up from, on a boat um, there was some kind of incident where a very presumably smooth-speaking Muslim trader had uh, seduced the wife of one of these uh, people from Tuscany who just arrived in the Holy Land and didn't really understand that, you know, Acre survived because the Mamluk Sultan didn't decide it was time to destroy it. You know, it, it was all over, essentially, but it was useful for him and it would take a lot of effort, a lot of mangonels and so on and so forth. But once these guys, this rabble, let's call them rabble, um, got out of control in Acre. They started killing Jews over here because they had beards. They started killing Muslims over here and over there. They were causing chaos and causing problems. But again, I wonder if these people of the Children's Crusade were a bit like that, like lower orders, a bit rough and ready, a bit rabble-ish. Nobody really wanted to talk about them. There are There is a tragic story, if I remember correctly, of children being led off into slavery and captivity, right? But again, the chronicles don't like to talk about these kind of people too much, really, I think. Yeah. Um, there's also a theory, isn't there, that Nicholas of Cologne, that he was the archetype for the Pied Piper, because, again, the children were supposed to have disappeared off, uh, or Pied Piper of Hamlin, wasn't it? Mm. The children were taken off and disappeared forever. I, I really can't make a decision on this one at all. It, it's, it seems almost like a peripheral matter. Um, I did mention it at the end because I think Edward Gibbon, when he was writing about the Crusades, really mentions the Children's Crusade as being another damning reason for this madness of the Crusades. You know, Gibbon was not a fan, to say the least. Um, and it's hard to argue with his verdict when we think about things like this. But I, I'm not convinced that it was children involved. I mean, of course, people reached maturity very young in this period too, right? Yeah. Um, one of the reasons for the internecine violence that was occurring before the, the first crusade in, in France was one, we know there were too many sons, right? Not enough land to inherit. The other thing is, well, the extreme youth of people that are involved that don't have such cool heads. We've, I can't really remember when I was young, but I'm sure I did some mad thing. <laughs> um, and obviously, that we talk about, we've, it's been about the crusades, and obviously, we know when the crusades happen, but they are still having they are still present in, in modern society. And some of the entries in, in your book have had tragic histories in, in even more modern times, haven't they? So places like uh, the Great Mosque of Al-Nuri, the city mm -hmm. of Marat al-Numan, if I've got that right. Um, but in again, with this modern times, I think I'll bring this into together now. There's quite a grim association with the Nazis, isn't there, with an object as well. So right up to the modern day, 
there's still a presence of the Crusades. Yeah, I mean, I mean, poor old Marat al-Numan is doubly tragic. Again, we, we saw what Islamic State did to this, this mm. very old city. Um, and in the Crusades Chronicles, you've got a choice, essentially. It's quite difficult to decide exactly what happened at Marat al-Numan. You've got a choice between extremely hungry crusaders absolutely starving on the point of famish, uh, of perishing, um, turning to cannibalism. And then you've got the version of Robert of Clary who points to the points the finger at fanaticism mm. that this was a bloodlust um, type exercise and this was the fact that you know babies were put onto spears and roasted over fires and consumed and so on and, and so forth I, i'm not terribly sure what occurs in fact in the in the muslim chronicles you don't actually find so much about that for matter al numan but what you do find which is quite interesting in terms of the evolution of the counter crusade is that you find for the first time Arab townspeople fighting alongside their Turkish garrison. The Turkish garrisons up to this point were, were seen pretty much as being um, oppressive. They taxed very heavily. They were very loutish in their behavior. One of the Arab poems, I do, I do use some snatches of poetry throughout the book to, to try and give that flavor of the time. One of, one of the Arab poets um, writes that his friends ask him, why don't you go out anymore? And he replies, when I go out, all I see is monkeys on horseback. So this very much shows us the, the, uh, the attitude of urban Arab populations towards their Turkish garrisons, oppressors, and so on and so forth. But what you see at Marat al-Numan is, is an absolute fierce fight against the crusaders that are trying to storm the city. The, the um, townspeople are even throwing beehives down on the heads of the crusaders as they're trying to mount the siege. Um, ladders, and there's a protracted resistance for almost the first time since the fall of Antioch. So I think that was the intriguing part of Marat al-Numan for me. The damage done to it by Islamic State is so extensive that the other thing comes out, and you mentioned the mosque of al-Nuri, is this, we're really, really, really lucky that photography was invented in the late 19th century, <laughs> because some of the best pictures that we have of many of these structures are actually from that period because there's nothing left of it now whatsoever. Or if you're in Jerusalem, for example, there's an urban sprawl that interrupts your picture. Some of the images um, that, that are in the book of um, medieval cities like Jerusalem are actually from that period. And then they, they actually show us much, much closer to how these uh, places looked at the time. But yeah, I mean, it, it's absolutely double tragedy there. The other thing as well is that... Um, in the Crusades, I think, in the First Crusade, it's quite a pivotal, pivotal event, Marat al-Numan, because there's a lot of authority by the higher lords and the higher magnates. There is a groundswell from the lower peoples that you will lead us to Jerusalem. We're now in control of the Crusade. There, there is a, a, a dynamic social change there as well, which I think we start to see towards the end of the book with things like the Hussite Revolution, things like the Cathars and the like, and the things, the loss of power by great knights and great lords on the battlefield as well, because technology has overtaken them at that point. In the First Crusade, it's the fact that this, this thing runs out of control, but later on, there's actually a loss for the nobility as well. So I mean, it's, it's, it's got a number of things. And I, I was shocked when I saw the images uh, at what had, what had occurred um, during the period of Islamic State in that area as well, because I know Syria very well. I've traveled to it many, many times. Um, and it is, can be, again, a beautiful, beautiful country, actually. 
Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> they nearly slipped my mind. Never forget the Nazis. Um, yeah, I did want this association, and I knew it, I knew it would be there without even looking for it. If you know what I mean, it, it was kind of like I wanted to be able to show how we sometimes divorce ideas like the Crusades from their initial motivations, their initial raison d'être. You know that, that, and that makes it, it. It's taking the nastiest parts of it, and I think that's why this gigantic Nazi soldier in the uniform of a, a crusading knight looking towards the east. I knew I would find it without even having to look for the image. I knew it would be there somewhere um, because the, the association is so obvious. There's, there's nothing of the piety of the crusader in there. There's nothing of the sufferings, the immense sufferings that were undertaken by many crusaders for their goal, whether that was as... Um, Pilgrim soldiers, as they viewed themselves, whether they viewed themselves as Militis San Petri or Knights of St. Peter, um, what you end up with is a brutal expansionist project, which is essentially you know, what, the, what the Nazis are looking at. And of course, in their case, instead of Islam, they substitute that for the communists or the Bolshevik East. So that's why our lovely Nazi night is looking towards the East. Um, and again, I, I talked about Gibbon a little bit earlier, and I was brought up on Gibbon. And, and I actually disagree with Gibbon. He, his verdict on the Crusades was that they checked rather than forwarded the maturity of Europe. But I actually think they were an essential part of the creation of the high Middle Ages and the early modern age, whether, whether by accident or by design. We've talked already about Italian sailors showing great elan, great courage, great ingenuity, great skills. And I think that is you know, blue water ocean policy of the Spanish, the Portuguese, the English and the Dutch grows out of that. Um, I think also, to be honest, Islam is so incredibly damaged by what the Mongols did to it. I think that, to be honest, the Crusaders were pinpricks on Islam. There were times where Egypt was looking as if it might get lost. There was a time uh, before the destruction of the second wave of the first crusade um, by the Turks that there was possibility they may have been able to go as far as Baghdad, but there was a superpower lying east of the Crusaders. And, and again, we, we come back to this in, in, in the books with the assassination of Nizam al-Mulk and the disintegration of the Saljuk Empire. Still a very powerful force, but much, much distracted with, with things in the East. Things in the East, when you actually study Islamic history, are much, much more important than the Crusades. Um, but this, the damage that the Mongols did, the, the the also, to be honest, the damage on the coast that the Crusaders did, I think there was a psychological turning in of Islam at that time. Forgetting the Ottomans to one side, they were a slightly different patch, but of the central lands of Islam, it really doesn't catch up with modernity until Napoleon turns up um, right there in, in, in the 19th century. And I think it's a pity that Zach's not on this call, isn't it? He's... Yeah, I was just thinking that. He would, he would love that. <laughs> the Battle of the Pyramids, yeah, he could probably get that and so on and so forth. But that's really, I think, one thing that does occur in, in that period of time. Um, but again, perhaps that Western expansionism is part of that slight divorce of piety and so on, but it is a mindset that we have the right to continue to conquer. And I think you, you mentioned this earlier a little bit. Um, Charlotte, this idea probably perhaps still pervades some of our thinking as well, that we, we are God's people, even though many of us sort of abandoned God, so to speak. Um, but I, this is why, yeah, this is really why I, I, I really want to um, 
this particular image, even though I didn't really know what I was looking for when I went out there. Um, I think we often lose sight about what the Crusades meant to people at the time as well. For me, they were an expanded consciousness of the Western world, for right or wrong, as I say. I don't want to discuss the morals too much, but I tend to take the protagonist's point of view in most of my books. Uh, there was a little bit of criticism around of my book on the Song Dynasty that it didn't show the Mongol side too much. But I was like, well, no, actually, I want to approach this as if I am Chinese civilization facing up to the Mongols and all the wrong decisions, all the wooden headedness, wooden headedness that I apply is from that point of view. If you've got a limited worldview, you make limited worldview actions. And I think that's you know, very, very important when we, when we attempt to write good history that we try to write it from without hindsight. So Which you can't, yeah, exactly. You can't do that mm. unless you are just looking at the, the one perspective. You can't, you can't actually drill down into why they were doing things if you're trying yeah. to look at it from both perspectives because they wouldn't have that. No, absolutely. And if it, and if it makes you narrow, narrow a vision, well, that's fine. <laughs> because Sometimes that's the only way to get like focus on an, on an issue, James. I think yep. I'm completely with you. Now, listen, we here at History Hack, we are a nerdy bunch, but we're also a clean bunch. So I want to ask <laughs> you about a couple of items that did make it into the book and ask you why, why they are there. So why is Assassin's Creed in the book and why is soap? in the book assassin's creed firstly assassin's creed were incredibly generous when i wrote a book about the ismaili assassins in that they gave me a whole bunch of beautiful images of leaping across roofs in jerusalem and all of that, <laughs> um, which i thought was just lovely because it showed again how um again to go back to that idea of cocteau that myth becomes history history becomes myth how they become mythologized they are dark and mysterious characters. I've done two TV documentaries about the assassins on a book that is far from being my favourite. Nobody ever asked me to do a TV documentary on the Mamluk, which I think to me is eternally <laughs> tragic. Every time I get a call from the TV, it's either them or, or Dracula, to be honest. <laughs> anybody, uh, I'm, and in fact, I'm hoping in September um, on Netflix, there will be me as a talking head. But in fact, um, it's the second part of, of a series that's already run on Netflix um, called Ottoman Rise of Empire, which in the first series they covered up until 1453. And then we're looking on a little bit further, Mohammed II in the Balkans. So dear old Vlad is there, but to be honest, I'm more interested <laughs> in Jonas Hunyadi, Skanderbeg and all, all the rest of these characters. But it should be re really good to see that. I hope in September it should be out and that'd be very, very nice. So, listeners, you can see me in the flesh. It's, it's, mm -hmm. not, a, it's not a particularly uh, exciting experience, I promise you, but um, it should be a good series. But again, the, the, the assassins, people love them, and they seem to love them right from Dante onwards, Lo Perfido Assassin, as he calls him. Um, and there's a chronicler of the Third Crusade who really let's rip with the old fantasy. He tells us that these young boys that were under the control of the Grand Master, they're taught every kind of learning, seems unlikely. <laughs> they have every kind of accomplishment in terms of how to murder somebody, again, seems unlikely. And they are instructed in various languages, almost no evidence for this whatsoever, <laughs> before being called before the Grand Master at pubescence. That's a lot to pack in before pubescence, isn't it? Before being sent off to murder great lords. Um, 
And even Brother Ives, uh, the Chronicle of Brother Ives, I do like him because he's, he's one of the very rare um, churchmen in, 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 um, in Palestine at the time who can even identify the difference between Sunnis and Shiites. And he's quite interested in Middle East culture. But even, even he gives us assassins who are full of the gardens of paradise, like Marco Polo gave us. Um, they're hashish-addicted devotees. There's murderers lurking in every throne chamber. And the troubadours of France love this, right? They, they come home with these stories. <laughs> oh, lady, you have me captive in your heart like your dark assassin, you know, this kind of quite crap poetry, to be quite honest. Um, but even Brother Ives gives us, I think I have to read this, actually, so I've got the book here. He gives us a grandmaster riding in a charity, sorry, in a chariot, riding <laughs> forth like death like the final horseman of the apocalypse across a landscape of fear. <laughs> the old man goes riding, a crier goes before him, carrying an axe with a long handle all covered with silver and stuck full of knives. And this man cries out, make way before him who bears the death of kings in his hands. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the assassins are hugely important. One of the reasons for the success of the First Crusaders, as I alluded to earlier, was the complete collapse of the Saljuk Empire in the West, this splintering of the empire in 1092. And that comes about because the assassins killed a senior politician, Nizar al-Mulk. And at that point, the Sultan dies shortly afterwards. The Caliph is suspected of murdering the Sultan. The Sultan's wife is involved in here somewhere. There's mutual suspicion. The whole thing falls apart. Of course, you know, Turkish Sultans is one Sultan, but he's got several wives. So there's lots of sons by different um, different mothers, so they all go into civil war. First Crusade turns up absolutely the perfect time <laughs> because this thing is falling apart. Otherwise, I think it would have been all over um, in the first year. They would never have taken Antioch. They would never have taken um, Jerusalem for sure. Soap, well, it involves the assassins again. I mean, let's, let's, it's also an object of desire in the Middle Ages. Um, I think we, we've already talked about Things like candy and pajamas and silks, all of these beautiful all things. All the best things. Now, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but Isabel, the wife of Conrad of Montferrat, who was kind of regent of Jerusalem at the time of the Third Crusade, when Richard was desperately trying to extricate himself from the Third Crusade, Isabel was a bit famous for enjoying her baths a little bit too much and perhaps enjoying the soap a little bit too much. She was lingering in the bath. So Conrad of Montferrat got fed up of waiting for her. I think he was going off to visit the Bishop of Beauvais. So he wandered out into the streets on his own where he was struck by several assassins and killed. All because his wife was in the bath. Well, we, we, got, we can't be sure. I mean, medieval chroniclers, <laughs> if they're going to blame anyone, they're going to blame the woman, right? You know, it's, 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 they're all monks. I mean, you know, they're going to blame her. But it is interesting that she marries Henri of Champagne, who is King Richard's preferred candidate to be the king of Jerusalem because he tried to put um, Guy, of, uh, uh, Guy of Lusignan back on the throne after he failed so badly at Hattin. Richard really needs to get out of Jerusalem pretty quickly because Philip Augustus is threatening his land at home. King John's kicking up trouble back there in England and he doesn't want Conrad of Montferrat. There's also a lot of fault lines running through Altrumer. Um, the Pisans were always backing King Guy and Henri of Champagne. Um, the Venetians were always backing Conrad. Saladin may have had another little hand in here as well, not through Saladin directly, but through his brother Saifuddin or, or Sword of the Faith. He was quite friendly with Richard, quite a lot of parleying and going backwards and forwards. 
And they may have got rid of the Conrad problem for Richard by contacting the assassins for them. Conrad had already peed off the assassins as well, however. He had taken a ship of their merchandise and he drowned the crew as well. So Sinan, the old man of the mountains, the assassin um, grandmaster, wasn't very happy about him anyway. So it probably didn't take too much for um, Saladin or Saifuddin to convince him that, you know, maybe go down there and do in Conrad for us. It suits every party here. Our listeners are going to want to check out the book. So remind us what the book is and where they can get hold of it. The Crusades in 100, 100 Objects is published by Frontline Books. There is a mail order service available. We don't mention Amazon on this podcast, do we? Uh, well, we, Never. we, we could just buy directly them. from the publisher. <laughs> we, can, we can call them the bad place, but I think we'll also try and put it on our bookshop as well, won't we, Beth? Do you reckon yeah. we can sort that out? I'm sure we can sort something out. Amazing. James, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been so interesting, and uh, we, we hope to talk to you again soon. That's great. Thanks so much, guys. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.